Hey everybody, how's it going? We are diving into 1 Peter. We're wrapping up chapter 1 in this podcast, verses 13 through 25 is what I'd like to talk to you guys about. Let me read the text and then we'll talk about it in four sections. So here we go. Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flowers falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So I mentioned that there's four sections that I wanted to highlight here and they are in four commands. The first section is verse 13, where Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we have a therefore here, people. And we always want to think what it's there for. Right? So in the previous section, Peter is using language from the Old Testament to describe the current state of the churches. They are scattered, like Deuteronomy says is going to happen to Israel. They are in exile, like Israel was in Babylon. They are a selected community. They're a chosen community, just like Israel was. God has rescued them. He has saved them like God did with Israel out of Egypt and how God promised to return them to the land in the prophets. In fact, Peter speaks of the prophets and how they referred to God's anointed king who would come and bring restoration to Israel. This anointed king in Hebrew is the Messiah, the Messiah. And he has come, right? Jesus has brought deliverance. And so I think Peter intends on us seeing this community as experiencing the benefits 
of the prophet promises, the prophetic promises, they've happened in part, but not in full. Already, God's king has come, but the, the kingdom hasn't been set up fully. Already, deliverance from sin, not, not from the Romans, has happened, but there's an ultimate day of salvation that's coming when Jesus returns. Already, has God's presence returned to the temple? But that temple is the community of believers, and his presence is not revealed fully. So here's the big idea. I think we need to have the whole Old Testament story in mind when we're reading 1 Peter. I don't think Peter is just using vocabulary that first century Christians would understand. I think he's making claims about who these scattered sojourners in exile really are. Such claims about their identity would lead to great assurance in the midst of being citizens of a heavenly kingdom with a king who isn't currently visible. So we've got four commands I want to highlight. And actually, if you're interested, I'm going to post a sentence diagram that attempts to follow Peter's big ideas and, and flow of thought. So I like doing these for New Testament letters because there's long run-on sentences. So phrases or verses that are on the farthest left are the key ideas, and then the indented phrases would be the supporting clauses or ideas. So I'll make sure to post that for you guys. Command number one, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. Notice the emphasis on the mind here. To prepare your mind for action, literally, in Greek, I'm not joking, it reads, gird up the loins of your mind. So first, let's just recognize that our English translations don't translate word for word, but often they translate the ideas for us, and that's fine, but something can be missed here. So what does it mean to gird up the loins of your mind? The loincloth was under the robe, and when you needed to do some serious physical exercise, you would tuck your robe into your loincloth if you're going to start running, say. So Peter's saying they should do that with their minds. Being mentally ready to deal with the circumstances and to contemplate what has happened with Christ, who, who then they are and, and, and what they're to do. I think this connects with the idea of setting your hope on the grace brought at the revelation of Jesus. Peter is telling them to intentionally focus on what will happen when Jesus returns. If they can focus on how incredible that day will be when Jesus shows up, then whatever they're going through can be manageable. Their sufferings will not last forever. An end is in sight, and it is amazing this grace is, again, notice something they, they have already received, not yet. Uh, sorry, they have not yet already received it. They're waiting for it. So we've got this already not yet scheme going on again. Have they received the grace? Of course. But the full outworkings of the grace of Christ haven't occurred. That happens when Jesus returns. And I don't think this is a rapture reference. I think Peter is talking about, I, I don't think he's talking about taking them to heaven. Rather, Peter is thinking of the day of the Lord that was rooted in the, in the prophets, a special day when God would bring justice, 
show his mighty works of salvation. Uh, remember, we should be using the Old Testament storyline and the words of the prophets to help us figure out what Peter is saying. Command number two, be holy. Peter says, don't be conformed to your passions of former ignorance, but be holy. And he says, as it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Peter's quoting Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2 here. Right? You, you were thinking, ah, I remember that from my intense study in Leviticus last month, I know. Yeah, uh, Leviticus is not really our go-to book for Bible study, but it's obviously a super big deal. So what does it mean for something to be holy? Well, actually the word, it might surprise you, has to do with a status that's conferred by God. God actually calls a bunch of things and, and people holy. He calls land holy. He calls trees holy. Days of the week are holy. And of course, so are buildings and, and people. So I think this tells us that holiness isn't gained by doing something. We can't make ourselves holy. And, and there are moral implications here to consider, but I think identity is a root idea here. Walton writes in his book, The Lost World of Torah, holiness is a status that is conferred by God. It can't be earned or acquired or lost through behavior. And if this wasn't new, maybe this next part will be. Walton, along with many other Hebrew scholars, note something interesting about the Hebrew grammar from Leviticus that Peter's quoting uh, in this passage when he says, as it is written, be holy for I am holy. Walton writes, um, if we look carefully at the grammar, we can find actually that it isn't an imperative, be holy, it's indicative. And so it says you are holy. And that's very different because this doesn't give them a pursuit. It doesn't give them a task to achieve. It says, you are holy. It's a given status. And that can't change um, because God said that's who they are. And their holiness is reflected in the fact that they are folded into his identity. God is holy. If something else is holy, it, it is because it's identified with God. So God tells Israel they're holy. And that's because he chose them. He has entered a covenant with them, Walton says. And that's a status that they have as an identity, and they're expected to live that identity out. They cannot become... Um, sorry, if Walton says, if God says you are holy, you don't achieve it, you can't lose it. So there is a question of how well you will reflect it, Walton says. You have this identity, um, and, and are you going to reflect it? And that's true of the identity, he says, that we have. How do we live out the identity that we are given? So you have God giving Israel a status, and he likewise gives us in the New Covenant our status. And that's probably what Peter is thinking. So all of that was... Walton's ideas. So here's here's me now, thinking and talking. So holiness happens only 
by God's decree. We can't make something holy, but we can, of course, make something unholy. You know, I've heard it said holiness isn't contagious, but unholiness is. God sets things apart for his purposes and plans. Um, but it seems like we can lose uh, that status in, in some way by our conduct, by our, our will, the, the conduct of the Christian matters. Um, now, you, you may say, why? And, and I guess I, I would say, well, why did it matter for Israel? It, Israel was set apart to live their life in such a way that the surrounding nations would see God's wisdom reflected and, and want to participate. So this is all over Deuteronomy. God had set Israel apart to be a light to the nations. Their conduct, like eating pork, was a way to make a claim that there's something special about their God. And so Peter is saying to the Christians that the choices they make on a daily basis should have the same effect on those who see them. So it would be like a Roman citizen saying, hey, did you notice that that guy Thomas wasn't worshiping that idol? Did you see that woman, Lydia, giving generously to that family? I saw a Christ follower yesterday talking to a leper about their king, whom I thought was crucified. Command number three, conduct yourself with fear. He, he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Oh, man. And here he's reflecting on who God is and, and the price that Jesus paid, the impact that that has on us, how it leads to reverence and humility and obedience. Peter says that they are God's children and he is their father. God is, is the father that judges impartially. He knows their deeds, all of them. And a judgment's going to be rendered based on those deeds. Um, and I, I got questions here about, is this a judgment of salvation? Um, or is it one of a different kind where there's rewards given? I, I don't know. So I, I didn't do a lot of work in, in studying that section. What does stand out to me is what he says after the, the reference to exile. He speaks of how they were ransomed <laughs> by, by blood. And it's a blood of a lamb. Does that sound familiar? So they were in exile and then ransomed by the blood of a lamb. So this is Exodus language for Israel, right? Uh, and of course, a reference to the Passover. Jesus is being likened to that Passover lamb that was used. Um, and uh, the blood, of course, was brushed on the doorposts. Peter's reminding the Christians that their ransom cost so much more than a sacrificed lamb. God took his own judgment. He bore his own wrath. And reflecting on these things leads to reverent obedience and submission to God. It moves us to conduct ourselves with fear. The final command is to love one another. He says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The commands that Peter gives here are 
are all rooted in theological truths. He'll say, this is what God has done in and through Christ. And then he says, here's what we're to do. Submitting to the truth of Jesus Christ leads to loving one another. And that makes sense. If my king would humble himself to death on a cross, how much more should we humble, humble ourselves for someone else? Peter, again, uses the imagery of new birth. This new birth that Christians have experienced, it comes from a seed that is imperishable, Peter says. And the seed is the word of God. Grass seed doesn't last, and the seed of a flower doesn't last. But God's word, Peter says, does last. It brings new and eternal life. Peter tells them this seed was given to them, and they've received it. They've taken it in. And when they heard that Jesus had become king by way of the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension, they gave their allegiance to him. The, the seed of the gospel sprouted, and they became different humans at that point, humans that now love each other. And I again want you to see how, for Peter, accepting the gospel about Jesus doesn't lead him here to say, and now we will go to heaven. But rather, it's leading Peter to reflect on how heaven has come to us in Jesus, and how now God is making us to be the humans that we, we were intended to be. The good news has come to us, hasn't it? And so what's the result of that? To love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And that's my prayer for us, guys, is that we will, the more we take in God's word and reflect on these truths, the more we will walk in the footsteps of Jesus and to be the kind of human that Jesus was and is. He's the perfect human. And I pray that God continues to make us more into the image of his son.